Pressfix is a production of JournoDAO, where we explore the intersections of decentralization, media, and independent journalism. Can decentralization save local media and rebuild connection at the community level? Join us and find out. Welcome to Pressfix, a JournoDAO's podcast where we look into the role of decentralization in news and look forward to a future where we can restore trust in journalism. And uh, we have a very special guest today. We are joined by Fraser Nelson from the Trust for Local News. So first off, uh, Fraser, thanks so much for for joining us. And I'm going to uh, hand the the mic now to to Keith to let you folks drive. I was super fascinated by the National Trust for Local News, uh, the conservancy model, and what you all uh, are doing. Uh, when we first started Journal Dow, uh, we wanted to acknowledge that there's a lot of other people who have been in the space for a long time, um, really concerned about bringing local news um, back or even in making it better than it's ever been. Um, so, Maybe you could uh, give an intro of yourself and then talk about uh, how you got involved with the National Trust Local News. Thanks, Keith, and, and thanks to everybody at Journal Dow for having us on. Um, so I came to journalism differently than, than our hosts. Um, I'm not a journalist. I came to this whole space of local news by the fear of losing my local newspaper, the Salt Lake Tribune. And I don't know if you all are, are familiar with the state of Utah, but the separation between church and state is about six blocks. And so the sense of losing an independent newspaper uh, was just, you know, untenable to many of us. And there's a long history of what occurred to actually extract the paper from Alden Capital, which is probably the leading evil vulture in this story when we, when we look across the nation. But uh, Paul Huntsman and his family, uh, very wealthy people with a long history in the state, were able to get the paper out of the hands of Alden, but it was still losing lots and lots of money. And Paul approached me one day, I didn't know him, I I knew his brother who had been the governor of of our state, Uh, but he said, how would you like to live in Utah without the Salt Lake Tribune? And like an idiot, I was like, what, is that a possibility? You know, I was really not as tuned into this whole issue as I, you know, as I think many of us were at the time. And the Tribune was uh, able to become the first nonprofit newspaper in the United States. And, you know, there was some, there was some fear and trepidation when the Trib approached the IRS looking for that tax status. But for any of your listeners that are nonprofit people, um, you know that lots of nonprofits make money. In fact, nonprofits need to make money. And a newspaper is really no different from, you know, like, let's say a symphony. I mean, you don't just wander into the orchestral hall and take a seat. You know, you have a ticket or a subscription. And when you read the program, you see advertisers. And when you look around the room, you realize my $45 is not paying for this experience. And then you realize the hall is named for somebody and philanthropy has come in and so the Tribune really took that same approach of just any other, like any other nonprofit institution. And my colleague, Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro, and a few others of us started thinking about how there might be a way to 
really expand this kind of effort and others that are occurring across the country and, and scale it nationally. And so that's where the National Trust for Local News came from. And we're not that much older than you guys. We're about two and a half years old. And one of the easiest ways to think about us is to think about us like a land conservation trust. I mean, we've, Eric, you're from, from New Mexico. You know well in Taos that if the last piece of local land is up for development, uh, the National Land Conservation Trust of some kind, you know, Sierra Club, whoever, swoops in and buys it and then turns to the local community and says, how can we sustain this? And that's really the, the role of the National Trust for Local News. We find assets, news assets that are very likely to close for a variety of reasons. And we try to conserve them. And then we help transform them so that they are sustainable for generations to come. And our motto is to keep local news in local hands. So local people on the ownership, local people in the nonprofit you know, governance model that we've put forward so that these papers are deeply grounded in their communities, reflective of their communities and serve their communities. So that's us in a nutshell. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I think the backstory kind of helps um, put this in context. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about how you landed on the conservancy model? And then maybe we can talk about um, the successes that you've had so far. Sure. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know how we landed on the conservancy model. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a question. It seemed like the natural way to do it. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you think about trying to do something at scale across the United States, you know, there's lots of, of similar sort of national to local models. The Planned Parenthood Federation of America, for example, there's a national Planned Parenthood and local branches. Nature Conservancy, um, all kinds of, you know, I mean, the NRA, I mean, there's all kinds of, of efforts where much of the technical expertise exists at the national level. So to, to use the Nature Conservancy as an example, you know, they have, uh, how do you do water rights in an environment like this? How do you, what happens if you take over something that has some uh, toxic waste? elements to it? What do you do with the wetlands? What do you do with, you know, this kind of property and that kind of property? How can you do an easement? Those kinds of national legal documents, you know, are held at the national and then can be applied locally. We don't need to have experts in all of these really technical areas in at the super local level. And the newspapers that we're acquiring are really hyper local. They're usually weeklies in small and rural communities. And I wanna talk a little bit about why we think those are really critical papers in our nation and in our democracy. But, you know, you can't find broadband internet in these communities, much less a mergers and acquisition attorney. So let's keep that sort of expertise and access to that kind of knowledge in a far more accessible place. And, and similar to that, the kinds of back office uh, services that we're able to provide, usually at the state level, but at the national, like HR, like accounting, like how to do a digital transformation, if that's something that makes sense in your community, 
these are things that have really been bypassed at these in these rural areas. And so we're able to kind of bring that additional national transformation expertise and back office services that both save money and um, kind of supercharge the local papers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think uh, part of why we felt kind of kinship with that that model is like we, we were initially thinking of like just a, a simple mission, a simple meme that people could kind of gather around. And we started thinking of like actually buying a local newspaper and the the tokenization models would be like kind of the mechanics of allowing that community to basically crowdfund purchase and, and govern. Um, but you're think what you're uh, bringing up is there's a lot more technical expertise that's, that's needed in these, uh, in these deals. Is there like a, maybe a use case that we could talk about, um, like from front to back that would kind of demonstrate um, sure. all the complexity and all the stuff that's involved there? Well, the complexity is it's, you know, you're running a business. So any business has its sim simple elements and more complex elements. I think the difficulty with, with local news is that the, the complexities are occurring within an industry-wide collapse and challenges. And so part of the part of what we've had to do at the trust is say, don't give up, guys. Like new local news is not dead, nor are the communities that they serve. And I think we have a history in this country of overlooking lower wealth, rural, you know, communities and their local newspapers are part of what makes those communities work. I mean, they're economic drivers, you know, they have the Piggly Wiggly insert and they, you know, do the advertising. And, and when you live in a community where it's either Walmart coming in or mom and pop shops on Main Street, I know which I prefer for our country. And local newspapers are really an important part of sharing that, that story. Um, so our first acquisition set of acquisitions is in Colorado. Uh, it's not really super rural and we've since kind of turned our attention more directly to big swaths of the country where we know, uh, local news is most at risk. But in this particular case, these papers were at direct risk of a hostile takeover that would, uh, our fear was, and the community's fear was that they would be shut down. Uh, you all probably know that the Denver Post is sort of the poster child of, of Alden Capital's bad actions. And these papers were in, are in the suburban and exurban uh, Denver, you know, right outside of Denver. And there are 24 newspapers that were up for sale and were very in a very vulnerable spot. Their owner, Jerry Healy, and his wife, Anne, did not want to risk the closure of their papers. And you know what? All owners are this way. The owners that we meet with across the country, they love their newspapers. I mean, these are people with ink stains on their fingers going back generations. And the last thing they want is for a hostile political owner or a hostile economic owner to come in. And they really don't want the papers to close. 
So these papers were in a place like many of the people we're working with where the Healy's wanted to retire. God forbid journalists have a life, you know, <laughs> and they were ready to retire and they wanted to find an owner that would keep their local news in local hands. And the trust didn't even really exist. I mean, we were just at this point, Saturday morning, you know, endless Zoom calls saying we should do something about this problem. And the next thing you know, we own 24 newspapers and they were placed in the Colorado News Conservancy as a local board. We entered into a partnership with the Colorado Sun, which is a digital first publication that was born from the, the hacking away at the Denver Post. And we've managed to bring those papers to a place of relative financial health. It is not an easy task and that probably the most not to get into the weeds, but the thing that has caused the greatest harm to the profitability of these papers is the increasing cost of production. And newsprint itself is hard to come by and printers are hard to come by. And there's just a few that still operate. So in states where we're active now, uh, active become active since then, we've actually bought printing presses. So we own the means of productions like like little Marxists, <laughs> just, you know, it's better for us to control our own, our own destiny that way. And we're actually printing papers that we don't own. Um, and, and so, you know, bringing some revenue in that way. So the Colorado papers, 24 in total, um, we are active in another state that I can't really talk about yet because we haven't formally announced it because of some of the, some of the, very specific political concerns in that community, but that's another 20. And, um, you know, these are papers that are in a very rural Southern state, uh, serving very low wealth and very racially diverse communities. And we really think that these are critical to, to basically to our democracy to be as blunt as possible. Yeah, I definitely want to put a pin in the democracy conversation and then maybe get to that next but so eric and crystal are kind of are from that area i don't know if this is connecting any dots for you that you would want to comment on or ask about yeah i'm uh i'm curious um uh, fraser if you if you know all the origin story of the colorado sun yes i do okay yeah the, the colorado sun's been a, a a important partner for us you know one of the you know, we conserve, so that's the first piece. We, we purchase the papers outright and they become nonprofits by virtue of being a subsidiary of the National Trust. We then try to transform those papers. And in some cases, it's like getting them on QuickBooks. You know, in, in Colorado, when we purchased the paper from the Healy's, you know, they were so, they were so busy trying to keep the papers going that people were, they were still writing checks, like physical checks. So upgrading some of the basic uh, business practices has been helpful. We, we gave raises to the reporters. Some of the reporters were on food stamps. I mean, and this is true all across the country. I, I was just on a, a call uh, yesterday, actually, with the union of the Tribune papers, which are also owned by Alden. And uh, that union had fought very, very hard for an improvement in, in medical services medical insurance. And the, the thing, sadly, I mean, tragically, that really caused Alden to finally uh, provide better insurance was the murder of journalists and 
in Maryland when they were shot at the Capitol paper there in Indianapolis. And that finally was like, yeah, we need some mental health benefits. We've just witnessed a massacre. So the, the struggle for reporters, uh, the struggle that reporters are facing in a time of real economic challenge is, is very, very real. So one of the things we try to do when we do our transformation of these papers is to look at the business models and the operations, try to streamline those, bring some new resources in, but also look at the quality of life of the journalists and the quality of the journalism itself. Uh, what can we do to listen to the community? We do deep listening, try to figure out what people really want from their newspaper, and then uh, work closely with the publishers to enhance the editorial content best we can, including photojournalism. And then we, uh, all in, in Colorado, you'll be glad to know if you read these papers, we're gonna get them on a decent website and digital products because a lot of people still read the paper, especially in rural Southern states. I mean, the, the physical paper, when there is no cell service, much less internet is critical. But in rural, you know, in exurban Denver, everybody's on their phone. So let's make sure that the Colorado papers are also accessible that way. So we're investing in that kind of product. Do we work as the fiscal sponsor? No, I mean, we create a local trust, a state level trust for local news. And then the papers are, uh, go into that trust and then are by virtue of our status and them being an, an affiliate of ours, get our, our nonprofit status. I'm curious if um, the Boulder paper is in that um, network you just talked about, the Daily Camera. The Daily Camera is not, but you know, there's kind of, there's two different entry points. Let me put it that way to, to purchasing these papers. One are one is like the example of the Healy's. They're ready to retire, and the kids are long gone. You know, we're working in Eastern Kentucky and Georgia and Montana and New Mexico, all around the country. We're in these smaller towns, Eureka, you know, not everybody really wants to to live in a, in a small town. And some of these towns are small. Some of these counties are, you know, 8,000 people. So finding talent can be challenging. Um so people just, you know, people don't want to publish, they don't want to be the publisher of these newspapers and they know it's really hard work and it doesn't pay very well. Uh, it's still profitable. These papers are still making money, but it's not like gazillions of dollars. And so that's a place where the, where the trust can come in. A lot of the requests we get are exactly what you're suggesting, which is can we extract them from a larger ownership group, be it Gannett, McClatchy, the Tribune group. And, you know, I think that there is some movement there. Um, I think some of these larger chains realize that of all of their property properties, the ones that where there might just have one in a state or where they're a handful, but they're in very small communities, if they really look at the return on investment and what it would what they would need to invest in these papers in order to really make them the profitability that these corporations require, which is not, you know, 2% a year, right? I mean, these people are looking for much more significant returns for their shareholders, which they should, and which is completely in line with their business model. It's just not our business model. So if we can extract those papers from larger chains 
and place them in a nonprofit, the profitability that still returns from these papers can then be plowed back into their editorial, plowed back into more journalists, plowed back into better pay for journalists, adding photojournalists, all those kinds of things. And my guess, and it is a guess, is that we'll see some movement in that area, perhaps not from the hedge fund types because they kind of believe in sucking things dry to death, but in the um, in the really in the chains like McClatchy and Gannett uh, that really are committed to journalism and really do believe in the mission of journalism. Alden Capital doesn't care if these are bowling alleys or newspapers, but Gannett. And uh, and others are, are are deeply committed to a shared mission about our democracy and, and the role of journalism in it. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar, do you want to give some background on uh, Alden Capital um, and just kind of like what what impact they've had over the past decade or, or well, as far as local journalism? Here I am disparaging a group that like nobody knows. I mean, I might as well be trashing the Kardashians, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, and I apologize for just assuming everybody knows what Alden is, but Alden is just a very typical uh, hedge fund, you know, a private equity type approach, which is, which you see in a, in a lot of industries where um, a fi- a, an organization with financial interests uh, acquires a distressed um, asset and then extracts as much capital as they can from that asset before either shutting it down or just selling off whatever parts there are. So it's, it's been very typical in kind of the big box store world. In fact, my senator, Mitt Romney, and Bain Capital is a good example of of. Uh, private equity and not always doing nice things to the corporations they buy, but they're you know they're part the part of point of view of Alden is that they're really the the only guys that jumped in here in the space of journalism, and in the case of the Tribune, the Salt Lake Tribune, you know they do the typical things: sell the building, sell the presses, uh, you know, it, it, lay off as many reporters as you can collapse reporting that's called ghost papers. So you might have papers that really don't have any local news at all, but they're extracting advertising revenue for as long as they can. And it's a pretty grim, it's as grim as it sounds and it's as purposeful as it sounds. Uh, I don't think Alden, I think for a while they tried to say they were committed to journalism, but I think they just got laughed out of the room on that. And really it's far more, it's far more accurate to say they're committed to increasing their wealth. And, you know, that's fine, but they're doing it in an industry that is central to the, our way of democracy. And that's what's upset people so much about Alden in particular. Um, they can, you know, they can go after Staples or Bath and Beyond or until the cows come home. But this feels... Mm-hmm. This feels to people a lot more personal because it's their newspaper that they're that they're destroying. Well, it seems like a picture is starting to kind of emerge for me. Is um, it's almost like journalism is an institution that we never really codified on a certain level. Whereas, like you know, even 
as bad as it may be, like the environment or the, like these resources or institutions is kind of acknowledged that like communities need are kind of protected from this sort of predatory, like market only like value extraction. And we didn't, we've always kind of viewed uh, newspapers as businesses. So, you know, fair, fair game to do whatever you want with them. But I think um, now that we've seen the repercussions, maybe we can get to like, what's at stake here in that discussion about, um, and I know we definitely have viewed like the deterioration of uh, these local, local newspapers and just the practice of local journalism and the interest um, as, you know, opening uh, a lot of the back doors to corruption and uh, power capture that, that we've seen in a lot of people are are upset about, but maybe like haven't named. And I, I feel like there's a straight line between, you know, the, de- the decline of local news and like the, the amount of corruption that, that most of us see at the top um, of you know, national and state governments. I don't know if uh, that's something that you found or what, what are the impacts do you think of like losing these, these yeah. papers? Well, I haven't found, found this personally. People's far smarter than I have have found it very directly. And there's been any number of studies, academic studies, uh, looking exactly, Keith, at the issues that you're raising. Everything from fewer people running for office and sort of the, you know, it's easy enough for incumbents with the gerrymandering of districts, but with the loss of local news, we see these incumbents have nobody running against them. People don't even know who's running. It's hard to find out who's running for what. And in in a normal world and without a a newspaper, there's nobody vetting these candidates. I mean, look at George Santos. You know, I mean, the little local newspaper there was like, yeah, we don't know about this guy. Like they were waving the flag, you know. But you can imagine in a place with no newspaper, God knows who's, you know, it's one thing to be dog catcher. It's another thing to be mayor. We, we actually, in one of the papers that uh, we work with closely, the mayor, I mean, I mean, get your head around this, okay? The mayor of the town fires the, basically the accountant, bookkeeper, comptroller of the county, personally takes the checkbook. I mean, this is what a small county this is. They have a checkbook, physical checkbook. Mayor absconds with the checkbook, fires the accountant, you know, the elected official, and starts cherry picking who she's going to pay and not. So, you know, friends and enemies, I mean, it's like Richard Nixon with a checkbook, and then gives her boyfriend keys to the county car. He's had any number of DUIs and is a felon. And people see him driving around in the car and they're like, what is bad Bob? You know, and she's not paying the garbage collector because she's mad at him. So people's garbage is piling up. This is, this is community journalism, right? And this is going on in a place with a paper that covered all of this. And of course, you know, scandal ensued and changes and people being run out of office. But this is, this is the, this is what occurs as it does in our in our world. And local news keeping an eye on those kinds of things has ramifications like 
the price of local bonds goes up 11% in places without newspapers on average because there's no one questioning why you need the bond and where is the bond going and whose decision was this? But besides all the negatives, and I think it's really easy to focus on people not turning out to vote, people not knowing who they're voting for, all of that very damaging, very damaging stuff that happens when news goes away. The National Trust for Local News also likes to think about and is beginning to measure those things that, those really important things that happen when news exists. And one of them that we don't talk enough about is the sense of community cohesion. And if I could, Keith, just dive into here a little bit, because I think this Please. is something that resonates for people, especially people of a certain age or people with kids. Like there's nothing more fun than getting your picture in the newspaper when you've caught the fish, caught the ball, kicked it in the net, whatever it is that happened. And it's much harder to hate your neighbor and to vilify them when your kids are on the team that won the championship or lost the game, right? As one of the people I met at a meeting recently at the Knight Foundation, who runs a small community foundation in a rural community said, if I don't have my newspaper, I don't know whose 60th wedding anniversary it is. I can't send them a note. I don't know when the pastor is won an award from the National Faith Association, and I don't know who's dead, right? And as a community foundation, it's my job to know who's dead, right? And all of those things, all of those things that make us who we are as a town, how do you find out? where to eat, where to go, what's going on, if no one's collecting and sharing that information. This sense of community cohesion is critical to reducing the divisiveness that exists in our nation. To, I hope, you know, increasing our collective sense of purpose and self. And it, when a community is facing really complicated issues like a post-coal economy in eastern Kentucky. Uh, 60 Minutes can swoop in and do a big story about opioid addiction in eastern Kentucky, but the people of eastern Kentucky and their newspaper is the one that needs to tell the story of what's going on in, our, in their economy, which is their story and not 60 Minutes stories. And so that's where we think that these hyper-local weekly community newspapers have something that nobody else offers. And that's why we want to conserve them. And let me tell you, there is not going to be a digital startup in Peary County, Georgia, population 4,000 people in the county, 8,000 in the county, sorry, or in Eastern Kentucky where you can't even hear NPR, much less get an internet service. It's just not gonna happen. So the myth of this digital future, sure, in big cities on the east, on the coast, et cetera, yeah, digital away. As many flowers can bloom in journalism, the better. But let's not destroy what we already know works and has served those communities for generations. Yeah, and uh, I would just point out that I think the people who are um, most, uh, ill fit to have those positions of power, the ones who are drawn to that power vacuum. I think it's like when you 
when you take away the people who start asking questions, then it's, it's not just like the luck of the draw of who gets to be in charge. It's like the people who kind of jump in and want to do the friends and enemies and they want to manipulate things for their own, their own behavior. And, and then it's the people who don't really, um, who you would actually want to be in charge is like the people who don't want the attention, who don't want like to do what's just best for them. They want to do what's best for everyone. It's the, it's their voice and their opinion that gets left out and kind of unmanifested in it. I think it's so true when you look at, I mean, but I just went on the, my neighborhood community council, which is like kind of one step down Dante's Inferno from an HOA. I mean, and the attacking that occurs on social media for like a, a neighborhood community council. And it's like that people are like, I don't want to sit on the community council. It's, and I'm like, oh, I'll do it. Yeah. And, and imagine that in neighborhood, at, you know, at a, at a county level and a county government level without sort of the, I don't want to say like an institutional moderator, but letters to the editor, opinions, debate, civil, civic debate can occur far better in something that is grounded in history and institutions. Like this is the paper of record, right? This is the thing. The letters to the editors in newspapers are far more civil than the stuff that's getting thrown at me on Facebook <laughs> as a volunteer, yeah. you know? So I think I think newspapers have people traditionally see those as sort of somewhat elevated, you know? And, and I don't know if that'll always be the case, but it, I, if you look at letters to the editor, that gives you some sense, right? Um, so I just had a, a, a quick question about, um, you know, going beyond conserving, um, you know, like uh, I, I live in New Mexico, that's definitely a, a news desert. And I've seen basically all but the paper that's here in Taos uh, on the northern side of the state. They're just all all gone um, and have been gone for almost a decade now. Um, and you can you can basically drive from here almost to Oklahoma without there being another uh, newspaper. So I, I guess I'm wondering do you think at all about beyond conserving what's struggling actually starting to replant some of these the the seeds um in in these areas that are currently undergoing news desertification i guess uh where there there's there's nothing there's been nothing for for years i'm thinking of some of the areas here where there were wildfires uh last summer and there was just no coverage because there hasn't been coverage for for decades um do you think at all about approaches to replanting some of these areas where the newspapers have already dried up and blown away? Oh, Eric, I would so love to do that, but it's not really our mission. Would There are 1,424 newspaper counties right now with newspapers, with one newspaper where the median income is below the national average. And many of these are not just lower wealth communities, but rural communities and places where we really don't think a digital startup is needed if we can save that paper. So with a thousand, almost a thousand five hundred to to try and conserve, uh, we're gonna focus there. That that's 45 million people in the United States. New Mexico's on the list, top on the list. Uh, 
And the American Journalism Project, which is an organization we, you know, partner with and, and admire greatly, they've raised a lot of money to do digital startups. Most of the their attention and resources have gone to urban areas uh, where they feel as though the news quality is poor or they're, you know, it's a news desert in terms of the gap between what people want and what they're receiving. And that of, often, uh, really importantly, is a description of the lack of diverse voices at, at the existing paper. So, you know, it may not be doing a good job of covering the Latin, you know, the, the Hispanic community, the black community, gay community, whatever, you know, fill in the blank around community. So investing in better journalism is kind of also the role of AJP, but they are a digital outlet and we are really interested in print. We don't have expertise in starting things from scratch. Um, I'll tell you what, when we get done with these 1400 papers, we'll start, we'll start making some, how about that? And hopefully if we show that there's a future forward, things can be revived. And we have talked to people who want to revive papers that have been were closed in the last decade or so. And it could be too, that maybe there's a, an opening in these areas that need that planting of the seeds that digital can come in even though there's limited access to, you know, bandwidth and stuff, but they can come in and be a placeholder and be the, like the water for the seed that begins to grow. And then once something is established, um, then, you know, it can transfer back into print or, or become something that's more accessible to everyone. You know, maybe print is never needed. I mean, a terrific uh, outlet is the Montana Free Press, um, which has just done a great job and where, uh, if we're able to create the Montana Trust for Local News, which I very much hope we do, then we can uh, we can help align those very rural. I mean, these are places that have one or two employees, right? I mean, they're very rural places. We can align the coverage there and and do sharing, you know, like we're doing in Colorado between our Colorado papers and the Colorado Sun and uh, really help the Montana Free Press have a more statewide coverage area, bring attention to issues that probably aren't gonna be understood at the statewide level, particularly issues where where these papers are, are reservation adjacent or um, you know are the closest thing to a, a reservation. And so we really need to make sure that we're, you know, that's that's an area where digital and print can work in collaboration to do a better job of serving the state generally. You know what that makes me think of is you, you said it, at some point it just made sense for you to uh, invest in the in printing presses. Would it ever make sense to invest in like uh, an ISP or like maintaining connectivity in some of these areas? Because the connectivity issue is kind of, we're finding it's uh, definitely related and entwined with like the the news uh, availability question too that's a really great idea and no we haven't thought about it but we should yeah i'd just be we'll have to call you guys because i'll really yeah. know how but <laughs> like we you know in one of the towns we work in they, they say they have broadband internet but it comes into one county-owned building and it's not the library and and that that doesn't check the box for the people that are not standing inside that building. 
So expanding broadband, although, you know, to be honest, that's a national issue that I think this country is starting to grapple with, with the some of the um, recent infrastructure builds and, and things. So we're hopeful that that broadband access will grow in these rural areas. It's, it needs to for a lot of reasons, obviously, not just news. I feel like we're dovetailing into public goods issues as well. Like as, you know, media collapses and as like what we just identified with, you know, lack of access to, to broadband in so many areas that as these issues become more and more um, challenging and, and come to light, we're going to see that we need to put more public goods, put public goods back at the front of the conversation instead of at the back as an afterthought. Yeah. So that we're not just trying to raise money um, through corporations and through other structures to support these things, but they're part of the public goods conversation. And we really only kind of realize that when they go away, sadly. Well, and and there's a couple of things happening there. And I want to just clarify one aspect of, of the National Trust for Local News model. These papers are profitable, right? These are These are papers that are still making money that provide not only, you know, a public service in that sense, but also an economic service to their communities. And, you know, sometimes they're a fairly large employer by the, when you add the print and the presses and et cetera, not, you know, enormous, but, you know, in the old days, you'd drive down to Main Street in a small town and you'd see it's like the undertaker, the newspaper owner, the car dealer, the grocery store owner. I mean, those were the big houses on Main Street. And, and newspapers just don't generate that kind of wealth anymore. There's a gentleman named Steve Waldman, who was one of the founding um, leaders of our organization. He run, he started Report for America, which is like Teach for America, but for journalists. He is now head of an organization called Rebuild Local News, which is working on legislation at the national level that can help drive, uh, drive some economic benefit to newspapers. And newspapers have always sort of been in their own special category in some ways. I mean, even, even back in Benjamin Franklin's days, they got a different stamp and they would, could be mailed for less money than, than regular posts. And that still is true. And you see it with like the legal, you know, legal notices that have to be in print. That, that, that's a huge source of revenue for newspapers, especially small ones, county seat newspapers. And so I think there's a lot of, very smart people, smarter than me, thinking about how to, Crystal, building on exactly your idea, this is a public good, these are public institutions, how can the public support them? We use philanthropic resources to acquire the papers and we then use really the resources of the papers themselves and collecting those papers together and some efficiencies that we find there in order to reinvest in the papers. Um, and we use some of that philanthropic money to kind of kickstart that process. But buying private assets and moving them into public domain is a great place for philanthropic dollars, right? That's exactly what philanthropy is for. In the same way that, in, that a land trust uses philanthropic money to purchase or to create easements, et cetera, on public land, to create public lands and preserve open space. And then, you know, do you put a nature preserve? You know, what do you do in order to keep it going? It becomes a local problem. I'm just kind of curious um, what some of like the biggest challenges or, or hurdles that that you've run into, you know, throughout this entire process of um, transforming these these outlets has been. Eric, you know, I think the biggest hurdle is probably the squishiest, which is 
the narrative was so clear that newspapers were dead and it was all over but the crying uh, that we had to remind people that there's whole parts of this country that have local newspapers that nobody ever thinks about, right? Sure, big national papers are in trouble or, or big city papers are in trouble. And it's terrible when those papers are closed. It's the worst of the worst. But newspapers are not dead. And local news isn't dead. And so part of it was just to get people to see what continues to exist. And that's been a big sea change. Penny Abernathy's work at Medill uh, on the news deserts in University of North Carolina prior really was pointing out to the fact that there people didn't know there were thousands of newspapers in the United States, much less thousands that had closed. It was sort of like, what? And I think that that's the first, so people are suddenly saying, wow, the, the latest Pew study showed that people trust their local newspaper far more than they do national sources of news, right? And people are suddenly becoming, or not suddenly, in the last, you know, well, four years prior, we've really seen the incredible detriment of the to the to our nation of the divisiveness that happens when your only source of news is Fox and MSNBC, and you kind of choose your camp and then fight with the other camp. I mean, we're seeing we're we are each of us living in an environment that has been harmed by the lack of civil discourse at a local level, and. It didn't, you know, I don't know if it took January 6th or if it was, you know, suddenly like, whoa, this is serious. Like, this is real. All the, you know, hand wringing. Yeah. And I think the desire that we have as a people, not all of us, but many of us have as a people to understand our neighbors better and to find a way to come together to solve the complicated problems that our nation is facing that starts at home. That starts with the homelessness in my community. And what are we doing for the unsheltered here? That starts with climate change in Salt Lake City and what it means if we don't ski anymore. God forbid, you know, it starts really here. And local newspapers are where you find out about what's happening in your town, in your county, in your state. So I think as there's a growing understanding of this, there's increased attention and that has helped us sort of leapfrog from like, uh, there's nothing left but, you know, to do but cry to like, holy cow, we better get it together to hopefully, I'm very hopeful, the resources that could help us conserve these papers. And I think the same thing happened with open lands, right? People are like, wait a minute, where is where are the cows? All I see is Walmart. Like, this isn't the town I lived in. You know, and, and certainly in, in the West, we're seeing this. So I think we're sort of at the cusp of the same thing. But the big challenge is, you know, there's only 1,400 of them left, and we better get going. We better get going. And this is a solvable problem. This is a $100 million problem. This is not a $20 bazillion Elon Musk go to Mars problem. This is like $100 million cash monies done yeah can we transition to the solutions here and like what uh what listeners viewers can do um how they can help 
Sure. Well, I think one thing they can do is take a good subscribe to their local newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know, get your get your fifty dollars, sixty five, maybe eighty dollars a year, and plunk it down. You're responsible for this at the very basic level. Shop where they advertise. Tell the people when you walk into the local coffee shop, I read about you guys in the fill in the blank. Let people know that news is important. Write a letter to the editor. If the paper is in trouble, see if there's things you can do locally, as many communities are starting to, to raise the money to buy the paper and turn it into a nonprofit on your own. You don't need the National Trust to do that. Virginia's doing that. All over the country, people are doing this. It's totally big, the Big Ben paper in Marfa. I mean, Marfa is sort of its own universe. They have like an art gallery, a coffee shop, and a newspaper all in the same business. But why not? Maybe you need a, a coffee shop. If the building, if the newspaper is in a building, chances are it's in an opportunity zone and you can get some really decent money to turn that into a, a shared workspace, into a whatever you need that you don't have in your town. There are lots and lots of options. And you can always call the National Trust for Local News. And uh, we're happy to you know spend some time with you problem solving. Uh, but the, that's what I think you can do. Number one, subscribe. Number two, subscribe your brother, your mom, <laughs> Christmas gifts, Hanukkah gifts. Put money in the hands of the people who need it. Yeah, I see uh, John had a question about uh, hostile takeovers. Maybe that's. It just seems weird to me that some entity could come in and say, we're going to buy you without the owners having any say so in that. And so I'm just wondering, like, what does that look like? And does NTL, and you already mentioned um, some, you alluded to to some education, of advi- advising some of these local papers on what to do. So do you advise people on how to approach situations like this and how to, to work through it? I mean, it just it seems like a lot of smaller entities wouldn't know how to deal properly with something like that. Well, I don't think Alden Capital is going to, you know, barge into Taos, New Mexico and buy a paper. What, what they do is buy Lee Enterprises. You know, they just made a they made an effort to get Lee, which is really like the remains of Warren Buffett's initial holdings. And one time Warren Buffett owned a bunch of newspapers. Um, and he sold them to Lee. Uh, they make plays for chains, not really a little dinky newspaper in, you know, so like the Tribune group, that's the Chicago paper, the Hartford paper, like big, they're, they're more into big metro areas. So you could imagine them going after Gannett, publicly traded companies, right? And the job of a publicly traded company is to get the best price it can for its shareholders. So when Alden comes in and offers a certain price for Lee, as they did, um, the, the the corporation is required. I mean, you know, has fiduciary responsibility to look at that offer. And so, I don't want to say there really isn't much that can be done, except to counter it with another offer. And you know, maybe philanthropy comes together, and and you can see that's. What happened with the merger of the of the Sun Times in Chicago and WBEZ, the public radio station? I mean, there's try and protect these assets that are very vulnerable. But I don't lie awake at night thinking about Alden coming after you know 
the fill in the blank little weekly. So Alden's way up the food chain then as far as you know, the acquisition. So a lot of the smaller entities might not even know they're being acquired by Alden. Is, is it? These are usually family owned one person's small shops. You know, Alden would not even know that these places existed. There's a group called Cherry Hill Media, which made a run at a bunch of small papers, but they're good guys. They're, they're advertising people and they see the value of newspapers and they use newspapers as a way to sell advertising in essence, but they're really, they're, fi they're fine. They're committed to journalism. Alden is committed to increasing their personal wealth. And, you know, like a vulture way up in the air would much rather dive onto an elephant remains than dive onto, you know, a, a little tiny baby gazelle. You know, so that's, you know, that's the way they operate. <laughs> uh, you, you may have um, touched on this while I was scrambling around trying to figure out my microphone. Um, but I'm wondering in the process of, uh, you know, acquiring and then transforming these papers, has there been any role for, or have you experimented much with um, citizen journalism? I'm thinking in, um, in communities where there's really just not the resources uh, starting out to hire uh, a few more reporters. Have you experimented with that at all? We haven't. And I, I just want to put a big giant caveat on all this. I mean, we're like two something years old mm -hmm. and we've got about, you know, 50 newspapers in our non-vulture-like clutches. Uh, I think that what's what's exciting to me is working with um, some of the HBCUs that are close to the papers that we own or some of the uh, colleges that serve indigenous folks in, in other parts of the country. And how can we bring new talent and pay that talent to build their portfolio? Um, I think that probably collaborating at, at the kind of freelance slash uh, maybe intern, but like intern, I mean like paying them, not like exploiting them, uh, probably makes a little more sense for us at this point. There's some great examples of citizen journalism, particularly in Chicago. That hasn't been an area where we've put any emphasis yet, Eric, but I, I'm, your point is really well taken. And I think it's something we can, we can explore. We just haven't yet. I also want to add that the, for, for a very, very long time, the National Trust for Local News was like three people. It, we're now up to five. So lest you think we are some behemoth, <laughs> it's a it's a lean and mean group. Well, uh, we're we're six people, and <laughs> we've done yeah. a lot more than we have. So, um, well, I also wanted to ask if there's anyone else uh, we should talk to. I, I feel like I want to uh, get in a, a war room with like the smartest people here and kind of strategize. Um, and I wonder if there's there's anyone else who kind of has a uh, maybe a sympathetic um, model that you've found or like that works in conjunction with what you all are doing around the financing side or just in general on like promoting uh, local local journalism um, trying to help newspapers whether it's uh, yeah. you know through ownership or not I would definitely get in touch with Steve Waldman I think he'd make an excellent guest and he's far he like wrote the seminal piece for the um, FCC about the kind of sound of the initial alarm, like 
oh my God, look what's happening. I mean, he really was on the bow of the Titanic, so to speak. And he's an incredibly intelligent and thoughtful person. And as I said, has already made such a remarkable impact with the Report for America. And now that he's turned his attention to legislative action at the congressional level and Senate level, I mean, I think it's just, he would have a, a, and he really digs the kind of stuff you guys are into with this DAO and web. I mean, he knows what, he knows what you're talking about in a way that I don't. So I, I think he'd be a great person to, to converse with. On that note, I want to add too, like, as you were talking earlier, like, there's an opportunity for the for the Dow side of this to create like a parent Dow on the national level because if it's just a hundred million dollar problem, there are plenty of Dow treasuries that are sitting on stupid money right now that um, you could put a coalition together to save that. Um, it would well, take. If you want to do that with me, I would be thrilled. I couldn't find a Dow treasury if you know you gave me a direction. So I, I we really need some help in in reaching impact investors and reaching Dow folks. I mean, whatever whatever way you all can be helpful, please, please, please don't be shy about helping us. Um, we've got an economic model that shows what an, what an investment does and what it returns. And the honest truth is it's not gonna return much because if it does return anything, we wanna put those returns back into the product and into the mission. Uh, so, if people are game for that kind of a financial adventure, we would love to talk to them. Cool. We don't think saving democracy has really needs to have much more of a return than that. To be honest. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. It's a cheap price tag when you, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Fraser, why don't we uh, wrap up and you can, you can tell us where folks can find more uh, information on national sure. trust for local news. We're on the interwebs too, the old, the regular one, uh, at uh, ntln.org. My name is Fraser Nelson, and uh, I'm the chief partnerships officer. So shoot me a, a text at 801-918-4216, or you can email me at fraser at ntln.org, and it's F-R-A-S-E-R. Happy to talk to anybody. We are an open, transparent organization. We believe in in dialoguing with anyone who's interested in talking to us. Thanks so much, okay. uh, as Keith was saying, for for joining us and to everyone listening or watching. Um, you know, for more information about JournoDAO, you can always uh, check us out, uh, journodow.xyz. The podcast is uh, Press Fix. Uh, please, please check that out. And we're on the Twitters and the Mastodons and all the other uh animal related social networks extinct or extant um so yeah thanks all 